Well, this morning, not only do we have people traveling because it's a holiday weekend, but Alex Galvin is graduating, and so the Galvin family's out, and so I don't have my usual helper here reading scripture for me and giving me a buffer this morning, so I'm going to ask you to bear with me while I get my stuff set up, but I think we're going to be okay. We are in the third week of our chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse look at the book of Ruth, and eventually I'm going to get better at finding Ruth in my Bible. I know where it is. Got it. That was way quicker than last week. So over the past few weeks, we've looked at the story of, of two widows, which isn't a happy way to start a story, but that's how the story of Ruth starts. There's, there's two widows. They are childless. They are without heirs. They have no family, no way to carry on the family name or the family line. One is the mother-in-law of the other. And these two widows are returning to the elders, the mother-in-law's hometown and her people after spending more than a decade. I don't, it shouldn't be, it's new. I'm going to be very still. Uh, After spending more than a decade with the family and in the culture of the younger daughter-in-law. Ruth, the daughter-in-law, promises to abandon her people, to abandon her culture, her belief system, and to adopt the people, the culture, and the faith of her mother-in-law. So in this land and in this culture that is foreign to her, Ruth takes on the responsibility of providing for both herself and her mother-in-law. Fortunately for them both, God had installed in his people, even at a time in the history of their nation, God had instilled in this people, this people that we are told multiple times throughout the book of Judges, that no one is following God's plan. Everyone is doing what is right in his or her own eyes. And yet, despite that, one thing these people are getting right, and that is that they have this system built into their society to take care of the poor and the destitute that are among them. Last week, we saw in chapter 2, verse 3, this little phrase um, that it just so happened. It just so happened that the field that, R- that Ruth showed up in just so happened to belong to Boaz. And Boaz just so happened to be related to Naomi's husband, Elimelech. It just so happened. We said last week that as luck may have it, or as it turned out, might be the translation that we have. But this is God. This is God orchestrating every little detail of this story. Because the one field out of hundreds of fields that she could have ended up in, Ruth is in the field of someone who is a kinsman to the family. He has a legal privilege and also a financial opportunity to do something about their situation. We've said the past couple weeks that just because we can't see what God is doing does not mean that God is not at work behind the scenes on our behalf. We also said that we are like Naomi. We wander away, but even when we have wandered, even when we are far off, we are being called back into relationship with God and into relationship with his people. We also said that we are like Ruth and that just because Ruth experienced this love and this grace from Boaz that she did not deserve and did not know why she was receiving it. And we have received a welcome and a grace and love from Jesus 
that we know that we don't deserve and we can't quite figure out why he would do this for us apart from his love. This morning, we are going to get to the third, which might be the most PG-13 chapter of the book of Ruth. And um, we're going to dig into that in just a second. I'm going to pray and then we're diving in. God, you are good and you are faithful. And I thank you that you can be at work at times like we see in the book of Ruth. At times that we are told all throughout the book of Judges that people, your people, are not doing what's right. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. God, you don't need us to be perfect for you to be at work. You don't need for us to have full understanding of what you're doing. You don't need us to grasp every detail of the plans that you have for those plans to work. God, thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that we can trust that you are working for your glory and for our good and that we get to be a part of that. God, bless us this morning as we continue to study your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So next month is the beginning of one of my favorite seasons of the year. Not summer, but camp season. Um, I'm speaking at a camp in Alabama in July. I'm very excited about it. I've never been there, but I get to go and spend a week with about 500 middle schoolers. I'm super stoked. One of the reasons that I love camp season so much is that 21 summers ago, um, while working at a camp in central Florida over in Lake Wales, um, I met Melissa Larson. She was Melissa Anderson way back then. It's funny how she looked exactly the same. And um, I don't have those sunglasses anymore. I know you're all very disappointed. Um, but I was counselor to a group of boys. Evan Miller was in that cabin that I had. Melissa was the counselor to a group of girls. And for whatever reason, our kids kept being assigned to do activities together during the rec period at that camp. And by day three or day four, it was obvious to everybody around us that something was happening. It wasn't obvious to either of us yet, but it was obvious to everybody else that something was at play. The problem was is that neither of us really knew what to do about it. We didn't quite know how to pursue it. Everybody else was like, hey, what are you going to do? Like, I don't know. What do you mean? What should I do? What am I supposed to do? Is there a manual here? And it's funny because now, like, you know, two plus decades on the other side of that, um, it took us less than two months to get it figured out. But those two months felt like an eternity. Those two months felt like they were the, the, like the longest period of my life ever. Who's going to take the initiative? What's the you know, proper time to wait to send somebody an AOL instant message? Because again, it was that, that year. And I'm guessing that depending on everybody's age or generation, we all have stories similar to that, right? Like there, there's an attraction, you, you like somebody, but what do we do? What's the next step? How do you play it cool? How do you do this? What do you do to not embarrass yourself? Because no one wants to embarrass themselves. And we have stories like that. And that is, for the most part, functioning within one cultural, one culture, functioning within a, a similar, if not the same, society, the same society. What makes Ruth chapter 3 such a remarkable story is not that it is the story of a woman pursuing a man that she is interested in romantically, but rather that she is seeking advice from her mother-in-law, the woman whose son she was previously married to, to learn how to proceed in this newly adopted culture that she's in. So that's what's going on in Ruth chapter three. Um, and we're going to get there in just a second. So if you haven't turned there or scrolled there or whatever it is that you do to get there, now's the chance. But here's one, one little thing I want to say before we jump in. This is not necessarily a romantic chapter. 
It is not necessarily a how-to chapter, but this is a chapter that is characterized by honor. Ruth honors Naomi. She loves Naomi. She provides for Naomi. She takes care of Naomi. She literally breaks her, well, she doesn't literally break her back. She figuratively breaks her back by carrying hundreds of pounds of grain to Naomi for months so that these two women can stay fed. This is not a one-time thing or a couple-time thing, but we are told that Ruth continued to go to Boaz's field for all of the harvesting season. This would have been March through May, months of work that she is doing to bring us to chapter three that we're in today. Naomi honored Ruth. She observed her daily. She observed the way that she had sustained them, how hardworking she was. And she said, this is the person that needs to carry on our family name and legacy. And then Boaz, the way that Boaz showed honor in a situation where he could have very easily taken advantage. Physically, he could have taken advantage. Economically, he could have taken advantage, but instead he chose to show honor. One last caveat, and then we're going to start reading. This is a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. Not every verse you read in scripture is a go and do likewise kind of verse. Know what I mean? Like, Peter pulled out his sword and cut off Malchus's ear. Go and do likewise. No, that is describing what happened, not instructing us what we are to do. I think it is fairly clear that this is a passage that is going to describe to us what happens, not necessarily prescribe to us uh, the best way to find a mate. Maybe, I don't know. You could try. Um, I think going to middle school camp works easier, but that's just me. For the record, we were, I was 19, she was 7. We weren't in middle school. That's, I have to clarify. 17, seven, yes, <laughs> seven, thank you, sweetheart. <laughs> I'm going to just read the Bible now and quit shoving my foot down my throat. Here we go. Ruth chapter three starts out like this. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find you a home where you will be provided for. Naomi says, Ruthie girl, uh, you need a husband and I got a plan. Here we go. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. There are two things that we need to know about Boaz just from these two little verses. Number one, we are reminded that Boaz is a relative or a kinsman or a kinsman redeemer, depending on the translation you're looking at. But this is a big deal. This basically means that Boaz is an eligible bachelor for Ruth, and he is particularly eligible because he is a relative of Naomi's now deceased husband, Elimelech. You cannot read the book of Ruth without fully grasping this concept of a redeemer. The, the Greek word is goel, G-O-E-L is how we transliterate it. But in many, in many modern cultures, the closest uh, that we come to this concept is debt forgiveness. But in the Old Testament, it is so much deeper than that. It is a radical redemption. It is a brother-in-law who can legally bring back the name of his dead brother by marrying his brother's wife and having a child to continue that line and that legacy. The redeemer forfeits his own inheritance to continue the line of the one that he is going to redeem. The redeemer is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Everything we read in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus but particularly this idea of a redeemer in Ruth 
it points ahead to Jesus. It is a foreshadowing of the one who laid down his glory in order to bring sinners back from the dead, spiritually and physically, so that we could inherit eternal life from the Father. This word goel, redeemer, it literally means reclaimant. It is derived from the, re- the root of the Hebrew word that means to restore, to repair, to deliver, or to rescue. The kinsman was also obligated to marry the wife of a dead brother who had uh, passed on leaving no children. And then he would not just have a child, but he would raise that child in his brother or in the case of Boaz, a, a cousin or like a distant relative's name so that that name would not be forgotten in Israel. So that's the first thing that we need to know about Boaz. He was uniquely qualified to marry Ruth because he was part of the clan. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago. He wasn't an exact brother, but he was related. He was part of the clan of Elimelech. The second thing that we need to know from this passage is tonight we know where he's going to be. He is one of the guys that you can marry and you know exactly where he is going to be tonight. Tonight he is going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. A threshing floor is a smooth flat surface that was used in the process of harvesting grain before there was heavy farm machinery. Farmers would use a threshing hole. They would spread out all of the grain and then they would walk on. It was kind of like a party like, hey, hey, the harvest is done. Let's stomp on the grain. And then they would try to blow away the chaff. The stuff that wasn't as heavy would be easily swept away or blown away. And then what was left was the good stuff that you could actually make food out of it. And Naomi knows that that evening, Boaz is going to be winnowing barley in a very particular place at a very particular time. Up until that point, Boaz has been in the field. Again, this was not common. He was the owner of the field. And yet we are told that he is out there with his workers, with his people. He is beloved by his employees. He's been out in the field and there would have been no time for Ruth to go up to him and be like, Hey, um, have you ever thought about marrying me? Cause that'd be cool. There was not an opportunity for that before. There were always lots of people around, but Naomi says, Hey, tonight we know where he's going to be and we know when he is going to be there. It has not happened before this time, but now we have this unique opportunity set before them. And Naomi says, here is what needs to happen Ruth. And this is not a hygiene lecture. I promise it makes sense. When we read this verse, like Ruth, man, you must, you must stink. That's not what's going on. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, wash, put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. Ruth, here's what you need to do. Um, number one, take a bath. You smell like you've been in the field for months because, well, she had been in the field for months. Uh, Get dressed up, get dolled up, get your makeup done, get a mani-pedi, put on that dress that you've had your eye on. When is the last time that you went and saw Miss Patty and got a haircut, right? Like, you know, we want you to look good. You get the picture. But this is not just we want you to look good because you're pretty much going to be proposing marriage here. But this is something much more significant than that. If you flip about 15 or 20 pages over in your Bible, you will be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is a very, very sad chapter. It is the aftermath of the affair that David and Bathsheba had and their son that was produced because of that affair. He, he died and David is in mourning. He knows that his sin has cost him the life of this child and he is grieving. But by the time you get to verse 20 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, 
King David does the exact same thing. He doesn't like do the makeup and the Manny Petty thing, but he says, hey, I'm going to put on my royal robes again. I'm going to bathe. I'm going to put perfume on. I'm going to anoint myself so that I look and smell better. He washes himself. We're told that he puts oil on. He puts on his best clothes to signify publicly that he is left behind the period of mourning. The period of mourning is over. It is time to move on. He is, of course, going to forever grieve his son, just like Ruth will, of course, forever grieve the fact that she was made a widow at such a young age. But the time of mourning is over and it is time to move on. And this is not just taking a bath and getting dressed because it's time. It is a symbolic announcement to the world. The time of grief is over. It is time to push forward with my life. It's a testimony that says I am moving on now. And so we get this picture of Ruth. This is what Naomi would say. Ruth, you have, you've been a widow. You've been in a state of mourning for years. You have only been concerned with providing for my needs and your physical needs. But now it is time that you look at the bigger picture. It is time to move on beyond where you've been and start looking to where you are going. You are eligible for marriage. It's time to start looking like it. And then Naomi says, I want you to wait until he's had something to eat. I want you to wait until he's had something to drink because let's be real. You know, he's going to be in a way better mood once his belly is full. And so that's what she does. Naomi continues when he lies down, note the place that he is lying. Then go uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now, depending on which commentary or who, what, what preacher you're listening to preach this passage, um, some might suggest that at this point, people would start to blush and cover the ears of the children in the room because this is uh, a little bit uh, more suggestive of a passage. But we have to ask, what in the world is it that Naomi is telling Ruth to do? Well, the first thing she says is, um, I want you to make sure that you know where he's lying down because it'd be really awkward if you went and proposed to the wrong guy. Don't. So number one, make sure you know which one is him. Step one. Also, they... These people knew the story of Genesis. They knew that sometimes you could marry someone and realize that you were marrying the wrong person. So that's like, that's happened in this culture before. So again, make sure you know who you're talking to before you start talking is a good principle um, when you're about to propose. This is kind of a joyous party scene. It is the end of the harvest time. There are other people there. They have been threshing this grain together. It's kind of like a community camp out. And so it's not going to be weird that you're there, but you still want to make sure that you know which one is, is that guy. So everyone's out kind of celebrating that the, the harvest season is done. They're about to get paid after a famine, which is going to be great because they haven't actually made income in years. And then she says, go uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. This is where the debate happens over this passage. What is Naomi actually suggesting here? Different scholars and different traditions um, like to point out that um, to uncover his feet might be a bit of a euphemism. And maybe we'll get to heaven and we'll say, now Ruth, seriously, what happened? Like, tell us this story. And we will find out that uncover his feet actually was a euphemism for something else. 
but I really don't think so. And really, it's maybe 55, 45, 60, 40 in the different uh, commentaries that you read about what that means. But there's only one other time that we have this word used. It's margela in, in the Hebrew, and that's in Daniel chapter 10. And it literally means legs and feet in that passage. There's no hint of it meaning anything else. And so I'm going to assume, and I'm perfectly okay with being wrong, that it's literally a, hey, you know, let them know that you're there, but we'll, we'll figure that out as we, we go a little bit deeper. There might be some different ancient Near Eastern meaning, but we don't know. Either way, Naomi says, you're going to go down there. You're going to make sure it's the right person. And then you're going to uncover his feet and then lay down at his feet. Can you imagine how awkward that would be? You wake up and someone's just snuggled up to your toes. That's what we have here. Verse five and six, Ruth says, I will do what you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Remember I said that this chapter is primarily a chapter about honor. Ruth is honoring Naomi. She is listening to Naomi. She is following her instructions. Ruth trusts Naomi's advice to go to the threshing floor. We don't know exactly how many years Ruth had been attending to Naomi's word. But at some point, Ruth decided, I'm going to listen to this woman and I'm going to do whatever she instructs me to do. How else would a Moabite woman know about the Levitical laws of gleaning if she was not willing to listen to Naomi? She says, you know what? Naomi's advice has kept me fed. It's brought me here. Why would I stop listening to it now? I'm going to continue to honor my mother-in-law by listening to her advice. Ruth trusts Naomi and in return, Naomi trusts Boaz. Because if you put Ruth in that situation with just anybody at the threshing floor, who knows how this story could end up. But Naomi trusts Boaz. Naomi trusts that Boaz is an honorable person who's going to do the honorable thing. And so she sends Ruth to do this thing that's kind of weird. Verse 7 says, When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth says this works out perfectly. He's even more secluded than I thought he was going to be. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a young woman lying at his feet. This is great. Something startled him, you think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you are a parent, you know this phenomenon, right? Like, you wake up, and there's just someone there. You're like, ugh. What? This happens quite a bit in my house, um, and it's an unsettling feeling. But I know those people. Those are my children. I love them. They live at my house. That's not what's going on with Boaz. He wakes up, and as far as he can tell, there is a stranger at his feet. He does not have an iPhone. He can't turn on the flashlight. He can't, you know, clap and have the lights come up. He has no idea who this is. This is a pitch black area, and there's somebody at his feet. He feels a breeze, I'm assuming, because if your feet and legs are uncovered, uh, you, you'd feel it. And we're told that he wakes up. You know that Ruth has been awake for hours at this point, because how would you sleep in that situation? You're wondering, what's Boaz going to say? What's going to happen? How is this going to transpire? And the author goes out of their way here to tell us that nothing happens that calls into question the morality and the nobility of Boaz or Ruth here in this situation. Verse nine says, 
Who are you? He asked. Good question. Because again, someone snuggled up to his feet. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Since you are a guardian redeemer. Your translation might say kinsman redeemer of our family. So here's what she's saying. She says, hey, um, now that I'm here at your feet, do you remember a couple months ago when we first met? Do you remember when you and I first met and you said a little prayer for me? You prayed that God would take me under his wing and protect me. Would you please be the answer to that prayer that you prayed? You prayed it a couple months ago, and now I'm asking you to be the answer to your very prayer. I want you to love me. I want you to protect me. I want you to look after me. Some of your translations might say, spread your blanket over me instead of spread your garment. The word is used interchangeably in scripture because truthfully, they would have like walked around with their blanket on them. Like the the outer robe that they would have worn would have become the blanket at night, especially if you're having the community camp out at the threshing floor. So she says, put your blanket over me, which is akin to saying, put a ring on my finger. I want you to be my protector. I want you to be the one who is protecting me and looking after me. This is a clear and blatant request on Ruth's behalf. Boaz, I am laying at your feet. I am pursuing you. I want you to pursue me. This is forward to say the least. I can't imagine Boaz had ever experienced something like this before. Um, And Ruth is going off script here. Remember, Naomi's advice to Ruth is lay down at his feet and then he will tell you what to do next. And Naomi says, and Ruth says, no, 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 I got this. I know how to, I, I know how to continue this. And she essentially proposes marriage to Boaz in this moment. She steps out. It creates anticipation. The hearts and the minds, especially of the original readers are going wild because we kind of know the story a little bit. Take a a deeper perspective. This is a Moabite woman proposing to an Israelite man. We know what the Israelites thought of the Moabites. But on top of that, this is a worker in the field proposing to the owner of the field. This is a much younger woman proposing to a much older man. This is breaking all the rules. This is shattering the social norms. And so how does Boaz respond in this? It's risky to say the, the least. There's anticipation everywhere. There's this woman at his foot, at his feet, who's talking to him. He can scold her. He could just, you know, kick a little bit and say, yeah, get, you know, get out of here. But that's not what happens. He doesn't say, what are you doing? You shouldn't be here. Go back home. Never come back to my field again. You embarrassed me in front of my people. He could have taken advantage. None of that happens. And remember, we are told multiple times in the book of Judges that this was a period of Israel's history where there was no morality. Immorality was rampant. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes is the phrase that we are given in the book of Judges. And we are told at the very beginning of Ruth that this happens smack dab in the middle of the, of the, the period, history period. There we go. In the middle of the period of Judges when this happens. And yet Boaz is more noble than the everyone who is doing whatever was right in his own eyes. He says in verse 10, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. Boaz basically says, listen, I didn't pursue you for the past several months because when you were working in my field six days a week, 
because I assumed you wouldn't be interested. This kindness that you are showing me is equal to and even greater than the kindness you have been showing to my extended family by taking care of Naomi, because after all, it is kind of our job to be taking care of Naomi. And you've been doing that. He says in verse 11, and now my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Some translations might say that you are a woman of worthy character instead of noble character. But the language that is used to describe Ruth here is the same as what we have in Proverbs 31 as a wife of noble character. And here's something that's really cool about this. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the books were not situated the way that we have them in most of our English testaments. We have, you know, the, the Pentateuch and then the history, then the poetry and then the prophets. The Hebrew Bible that they had at the time of Christ was not arranged in that way. Some of it was written, um, was arranged specifically by the writing order, for instance, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings were together. But then the Chronicles showed up way at the end after all of the prophets as kind of a look back retrospective at the history of the nation. But in the Old Testament that they had at the time of Jesus, the, the, the Hebrew Bible, Ruth starts immediately when Proverbs ends. Proverbs ends with Proverbs 31, this description of a godly woman. And then on the very next page or the very next scroll, you have the beginning of the story of Ruth. And here at the climax of the story, you have Boaz saying, this is what a wife of noble character looks like. Just a neat way that God is orchestrating all things, including the, the layout of books. And so as we are expecting Boaz to immediately accept or reject his proposal or her proposal. We're expecting Boaz to say, yes, I will redeem the family. I will show up and help. I will redeem my cousin or my nephew or whatever he was to Elimelech. I will redeem his property and his family line. Boaz informs Ruth, there might be one little hiccup in the plan. He says, although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do this duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. This is a picture of the kind of man that Boaz is. He knows that this was the way that things were set up among God's people. He knows that there is a law in place, and he says, if he is not willing then I will do it in a heartbeat. And he says, lie here until morning. He says, stay here. You don't need to go out there in the middle of the night. It's not safe. I want you to stay here. But you need to know, before I act on this proposal, I might not be the one who has first option. Now, we read that and we think, ugh. Like we have a Western mindset and it's like, that's not the way that you treat a woman. Shame on you, Boaz. But in that culture and in that law, and it wasn't just about marrying Ruth. It was about this field that Elimelech had owned that was worth some value. He said, there's a closer family member who has dibs before I do. And because of that, I'm not going to dishonor my family by promising you anything now that I might have to take back later. Because again, the theme of this chapter is all about honor. Verse 14 says, so she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could recognize her. And he said, 
No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He says, you and I both know that nothing happened here last night. You and I both know that nothing that was not honorable happened here. But because I value you and I respect you and I want to honor you, I also want to honor your reputation going forward. So don't let anyone see you on the way out. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then she went back to town. Now, we don't know exactly how much six measures of barley would be because here previously we had shekels. Now we have measures. We don't know the difference because measure is not an actual form of measurement that has carried on throughout the millennia. But it is speculated that this is somewhere between six and 95 pounds of grain. That is a whole lot of food that Ruth is now like Santa Claus style carrying back through town on her way to Naomi's house. She is, you know, <laughs> hauling all this food to go back. So she gets back home to the city or to, to uh, Naomi's house. We're told when Ruth came home to her mother-in-law, Naomi said, how did it go? My daughter, I see you carrying a giant bag of food. Does that mean that you're not welcome back? I see you carrying all this food. Does that mean he was enthusiastic? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty handed. I doubt Ruth or Boaz slept really well that night, but I am certain that Naomi had a very restless night pacing back and forth, wondering how this was going to happen. How did it go? Did our plan work? And then we have Ruth showing up back at the house at first light. And we are made very clear. It's made very clear to us that Boaz didn't just want Ruth to like him. He wanted her mother-in-law to like him as well. This is a great move, gentlemen. Uh, he says, I'm going to get the parents on my side as well, right off the bat. I don't just want to honor you, Ruth. I want to honor Naomi as well. And he says, take this and make sure she knows it is because I value her and I care about her. I don't want you to go back to her without anything. Verse 18 ends the chapter like this. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter. Wait. Until you find out what happens today, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled. In other words, sit tight. Today is going to be the day. He's going to take care of things. And the scene comes to a dramatic end. Ironically, this is the last time we actually hear or read Ruth or Naomi's voice um, for the rest of the book. Boaz kind of takes over in the chapter that we're looking at next week. But what happens here at the end of chapter three is the curtain closing on these two women sitting in need of an heir in their home waiting. They're waiting. God, we're, we're trusting you. We think you're going to act. But until you do, we are just waiting. We are waiting for you to do what we know you can do. We are waiting for you to do what we trust that you eventually will do. But God, here we are. It hasn't happened yet. And so we are just waiting. Boaz now takes center stage. But the reality is that things are not in Boaz's hands and they're not in Ruth's hands either. Things are in the hands of Yahweh, the Lord God. And everybody in this story is waiting to see what God is going to do. And I know we're going long. It's, it, it's time to wrap up. But I want us to notice a few principles about this chapter that we can put into action this week. 
first and primarily this story, this chapter is a reminder that we are all desperate for a redeemer. The reason that this piece of literature is included in the Holy scriptures is because it points ahead to Jesus. We cannot make it on our own. We need a redeemer. We need one to step in on our behalf and do what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. That is the reminder that Ruth gives us in looking ahead to Jesus, that we need a redeemer, each and every one of us. Second, true godly love that we see here in the book of Ruth, a true and godly love is a love that honors and a love that protects. It is a love that honors in the daylight and at night. Notice how Boaz is concerned with Ruth's reputation. He is concerned with her physical well-being. And we'll see next week that he is concerned with making sure that everything is above board. There is a closer relative that has no idea what's going on. A closer relative that isn't even a part of the story yet. Boaz and Ruth could be honeymooning in Majorca by the time the guy even knows that Ruth was an option for him. But loving someone means honoring them and keeping them honorable. And that is what we see here from Boaz. And lastly, there's more waiting. There is waiting for God to act. Trusting God means trusting in his timing. And I am sure that Naomi was ready for God to act. I am sure that Ruth was ready to officially move on. But sometimes God's timing only makes sense to God. And as people of faith, our job is simply to wait. And here in chapter three, we get another picture of what true faith looks like. And sometimes true faith means sitting back and saying, God, I don't understand your plan. I don't always agree with your plan, but I'm going to wait for your plan. True faith is being willing to wait on God and his timing. True love makes sure that it is honoring and honorable. And every one of us is in need of a redeemer. Would you pray with me? Lord, bless us now as we continue to worship. Would you remind us that we don't just need a redeemer, but that we have a redeemer. A redeemer who has given himself for us so that we can have a future, so that we can have an inheritance in eternal life. Lord Jesus, how grateful we are for the love that you have bestowed on us that we know we don't deserve and could not earn. May we, in response to that love, live a life of worship. May we live a life of honoring the people that you have called us to love. And may we wait on you and your plan. Lord, bless us now as we continue to worship. Bless us as we give. Bless us as we fellowship with one another. And bless us as we sing. Lord, be glorified in us, your people. And it's in Jesus' name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.